You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. We are thrilled today to have Michael Goldberg here. For those of you who don't have a handout, who are listening to podcasts or watching online, I just want to let you know that uh, Michael is a partner at Moore Davidale Ventures. He has a very extensive background as both an entrepreneur and an investor, and we're going to hear a lot more about this uh, during this interview. Uh, my plan is to interview him for a good part of the hour, but I will certainly leave time at the end for everyone to ask questions. So Michael. I want to start out with a little bit about your background. Um, it's really interesting. We're looking at a room full of students who are probably mostly scientists and engineers. And you studied philosophy in school. You studied philosophy, and then you got your MBA. But now you have become an expert in life, science, um, life sciences and have been involved in life sciences in many different roles. At what point did you decide to specialize? And how did you do that since you didn't study this in school? Well, I guess um, since I went to Stanford as well, uh, the purpose of a, a great education is to learn how to learn. And over the course of the next uh, 25 years of your career, which is the duration that I've been out of the, the business school, uh, I've had to relearn lots of things. And some of those things um, uh, were a little far afield from uh, what I was trained at before I got to them. Uh, my interest in life sciences really had to do with uh, trying to pick a career that would put me in the path of progress over the course of it. And uh, biotechnology was just beginning to emerge uh, from the uh, university laboratories. It had not yet gotten uh, into uh, commercialization mode, although venture-backed companies were just beginning to be formed. And it was really an interest in being able to participate in an industry that was going to be doing something that uh, made some contribution. Uh, to uh, improvement of uh, the human condition that attracted me to it. And then I found, fortunately, uh, a lot of uh, uh, very, very uh, generous and patient uh, graduate students in other departments at Stanford who uh, helped tutor me. Well, I, obviously, you have leveraged that uh, very, very well. You have been involved with life sciences from many different perspectives, cancer treatment, health insurance, software and medical settings. Do you need to be a domain expert in each of these areas, or um, are there some skills that you need uh, that basically uh, cover all of them? Uh, it's a really good question. I think in many regards, uh, even though I'm a specialist in life science investing and in life science uh, company formation, I'm a uh, uh, generalist with respect to uh, how that really all comes together in the context of uh, uh, new companies and uh, emerging technologies. And I think there is a very positive um, uh, interaction and network effect on the healthcare system, different healthcare system elements and, and how they all work uh, uh, that affects virtually any company that I'm involved in. Is, as you all know, as consumers of healthcare, it's a very complex, multi-constituent system that we've got in the United States. And as a consequence, uh, understanding each one of those constituencies is important in terms of designing new products for any of those constituencies. Interesting. Well, I want to do a deep dive into one chapter of your experiences. Um, you started out uh, at one point in your career as a venture capitalist, 
And then you left to go found a company and spent nine years building that venture before selling it. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it because um, from our discussions, I know it's a pretty fabulous story. Well, the, uh, uh, I, I, even before then, I was an entrepreneur. So I was five years as an entrepreneur before I uh, joined a, a Silicon Valley-based venture firm by the name of Seven Rosen, which had started Compaq and Lotus and was uh, one of the most successful firms investing uh, through the 80s and still continues to be very successful. Um, I was uh, hired in to help establish uh, presence for them in the biotechnology and life science field. And in the course of that, because they were doing early stage investing, as we do at Moore David Dow and, and I do personally, we were focused on uh, uh, really incubations and seed stage ideas and Series A financings largely. The, I had an idea to start a company focused on uh, service delivery for new cancer medicines. One of the impacts of recombinant DNA on development of new cancer therapies was an exponentially large number of new medicines being introduced into a very inefficient distribution channel. And I was enamored with uh, trying to solve that supply-demand imbalance. And in that connection, while a venture capitalist, I had the freedom to spend some time uh, working on it and became so enamored that I uh, asked my partners if I could uh, uh, take a seed investment and go out and get the company started. What I didn't expect to happen is is that uh, once I did that, that the doors quickly shut and were bolted behind me. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I have great appreciation that it really takes, uh, uh, they didn't, had no interest in my doing this as a, continuing to do it as a project in the context of the firm, but if I was willing to pound the table and walk out on my career, as it might have been there at that time, uh, and start this, they were comfortable doing it. So that's what, what I did as a sole company founder, um, which has pluses and minuses associated with it. I, cur- I encourage everybody who's going to be uh, thinking about starting a company here to do it with at least a co-founder, because it's a lonely, lonely uh, and difficult road. But uh, what we started doing at, at Axion was developing uh, services for uh, bridging the gap between uh, new cancer medicines under development that were biotechnology, protein-based macromolecules, and uh, transforming the distribution system uh, to get them to what ultimately became, in our case, uh, 50% market share in the United States and over 90% of the medical oncologists who treat cancer patients uh, in the country. Uh, that was a short uh, explanation of kind of how we developed and what we developed into. And by the time we got to about a $200 million revenue rate, we became very attractive to uh, the largest player then in the cancer medicine field that was Bristol-Myers Squibb. Today it's Genentech, and I understand uh, uh, several weeks ago you had the privilege of having uh, Kim Popovitz, who was a uh, senior executive at Genentech here. Um, But uh, at that time it was Bristol-Myers Squibb. It's interesting, just parenthetically, the time I was uh, starting my career, Genentech was a pre-revenue venture capital funded startup, and, you know, Bristol-Myers was 
probably a five to ten billion dollar revenue a year behemoth. Today, Genentech is bigger than Bristol Myers Squibb on virtually every measure of uh, uh, company evaluation. Is the leading uh, cancer medicine company uh, in the United States, if not the world. And uh, it's interesting to see how the technology drove uh, industry uh, structure transformation. And we'll see that again. So, Michael, when you started, did you have the goal in mind? Did you imagine, I'm going to start this company, I want to build it to a certain size and then sell it to a large, uh, large company? Um, or did you have a different path? Was, was it surprising to you? Well, I, uh, the expectation was is that we would uh, build it to a, you know, a, a large, enduring enterprise, the kind of stuff that Jim Collins has talked about. Uh, this was before Jim Collins was talking that way. And uh, we didn't know. We presumed we would take it public, or perhaps it would uh, find itself being merged into uh, uh, another organization. But we, it wasn't clear at the time how it would happen. Uh, we knew why it would happen, and the why it would happen was the value proposition in which the company was based, uh, namely that there was a, a, a technology shift that was transforming the distribution system for these sorts of medicines, changing some of the uh, delivery system requirements, and as a consequence, there was going to be, uh, as a result of those macro shifts, an opportunity for a company to establish itself as the premier service-based uh, member in that value chain, which we did succeed in doing, but it was hardly a straight line path to get there. So I'm curious. I, I just want to drill down on this a little bit more. When you got to the point where you sold the company, did they come to you or did you go to them? Or was it more of a you know, meeting in a smoke-filled room and saying, hey, this sounds like an interesting partnership? Uh, it's, uh, it's a great question. Uh, it, we had a, an ongoing business relationship with uh, Bristol-Myers because they were a very, very important part of the, uh, the product mix that we sold. So we had become a very, very large customer. In fact, I think their single largest customer. Uh, and if something happens, uh, as those of you who have studied microeconomics know, uh, you know, in terms of trade uh, change, there's a uh, statement they have in the banking industry. If you loan somebody uh, uh, a million dollars, uh, the bank owns you. If the bank loans you a billion dollars, you own the bank. And so, in fact, what had happened is we became such a important customer to Bristol-Myers that we had market power that they were not thrilled about having to deal with. And that evolved our relationship into uh, uh, first a strategic joint venture, and then ultimately uh, they decided to uh, buy the company. Very, very interesting. I think that's very ins instructive uh, for everybody. So let me ask you, would you do it again, knowing what you know now? I mean, uh, I know that every person I know who starts a company says that uh, it was filled with surprises they never even imagined. So knowing what you know now, would you have done it then? Uh, yes, I would do it again, because it was a time in my life that uh, I had the personal flexibility. Uh, I wasn't yet married, didn't have kids. Uh, I could work like a maniac 80, 100 hours a week, had the energy to do that, um, and uh, had no sense that uh, it might go on 
for days and days and weeks and weeks and years and years, and it does. So um, uh, even though we got to the point of you know, several hundred million in revenues and uh, that business under Bristol-Myers Squibb did, I think, three billion in revenues last year, um, the process of pushing the boulder up the hill and not knowing or being able to see where that boulder is going to crest. It, but knowing if you stop pushing, the boulder will win. Uh, it was something I, I, uh, I, I don't relish doing anymore. Uh-huh. But I'm happy to help other people <laughs> who want to push the boulder up uh, and share with them uh, the experiences and toils along the way and give my best estimate of uh, where it does begin to plateau and uh, where they will essentially have crossed the chasm. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of people who have been very successful say that there are uh, many, many dark days during the process, and maybe that's comparis- compared to you are pushing the boulder up the hill and quite n- not quite knowing if you're going to be able to hold it back. Um, would you describe it that way, too, as days where you quite don't quite know where you're going and your flashlight isn't quite bright enough to see around the next corner? Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, oh, there are a lot of dark days. Many more dark days than uh, uh, than sunny days along the way. Um, but what motivates you at that point? I mean, what is it that keeps you going when the day is dark? Is it just the amount of momentum you've already put into it? Is it the end you see? Is it the fact that you're helping people? What is it that's the motivator? I think it's a little bit of uh, all of those. I guess some of it's got to be a little psychographic. It's got to be a little fear of failure. Uh, it's got to be a recognition that you've uh, uh, you've got responsibility for employees and families, uh-huh. that you've got responsibility to people that you've accepted uh, investment funds from. I don't know any entrepreneur that's gone out and raised money with a plan that wasn't aggressive. And then what happens is, once you've raised the money, all of a sudden, you know, there's this realization. It's not a projection anymore. It's a projection that has to become a reality. Otherwise things get very uncomfortable. you got to deliver. Now, guess what? You're now on the other side of the table. Yeah. Uh, you are now giving out money and uh, expecting people to stick with the plans that they've put together. You obviously now have your finger in lots of different pots uh, with lots of new ventures. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of them that you are most excited about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, uh, the major thesis of our life science investing at uh, MDV is really uh, to focus on the convergence of life sciences with information technology and material sciences. And so the, the future as we see it, we're kind of bio-X for venture capital. Uh, and if it, a project doesn't have enough elements of this multidisciplinary mix, if it isn't cre- really kind of pushing the edge of where those disciplines might meet and be integrated, uh, it's really not of great interest to us. Uh, although it may be a great project for many other people. Um, so uh, just to give you an example, one of the companies that uh, we're working on is called Pacific Biosciences. And Pacific Biosciences is uh, a group of physicists who were specialists in optical technology who have married that with the ability to analyze the synthesis and sequencing of DNA at the single molecule level at a cost which is orders of magnitude lower than what the costs of current DNA sequencing are. 
So, in fact, the company has just recently been awarded by the National Cancer Institute a multi-million dollar grant the, for the so-called $1,000 genome project. So the first time we sequence the human genome, and we only have two human sequences, one of Craig Mentors and the other a person who is anonymous. But over the course of the next uh, 10 to 15 years, we expect as a matter of course in clinical medicine for each of us to have our genomes sequenced. But that's not going to happen uh, with the current technology and with the current costs per sequence. So one of the areas that uh, we're very excited about is the impact that this enabling technology will have on transforming uh, the U.S. healthcare system because once we have the information on each of our genetic profiles, it gives us tremendous insight into preventive medicine, which is the best way to manage the healthcare system that we've got today in a cost-effective manner. So I would assume this is a really important piece of personalized medicine. Yeah, exactly. So personalized medicine, uh, the so-called ability to use genetics and genomics to identify the, the right drug to give to a specific patient at the right time in the course of their illness or recovery is an area that is very dependent on doing a genetic analysis at the level of the individual, not doing a whole genomic analysis, but being able to analyze specific genes in a tumor tissue, for instance, or specific proteins in blood to make determinations about the progress of an individual's uh, cancer, the progress or likelihood of their potential diabetes or osteoporosis or uh, cardiovascular disease. And we're investing in several companies that are pioneering that field, the field so-called molecular diagnostics, which Genomic Health is uh, perhaps the premier uh, company in today with respect to cancer and uh, uh, tissue analysis for cancer care. Cool. So um, one of the interesting things, one of the most interesting things that you get to do as a venture capitalist is sit on boards of all of these different companies. And I'm sure that gives you a tremendous perspective. But it's one of the places that uh, we often don't get a look at. Maybe you could give us a little bit of a sense of the flavor of what happens in boardrooms, what are the roles of different types of boards, and maybe a little bit about the, the diversity of what happens in these different types of companies. Sure. So uh, for-profit boards uh, are very different than not-for-profit boards, and I'll address that first, and if we have time sure. or interest, we can address not-for-profit boards. But for-profit boards for small uh, seed-stage startup companies are, the board is, in essence, just an uh, extension of the management team. So the selection of board members ought to be based on people who can really add value, not just add capital to what you're trying to accomplish. So uh, I'm on some boards where it's the founders and me, or maybe the founders and me and somebody uh, with uh, a complementary skill set to mine who's an independent director or representing another uh, uh, venture partner in the uh, financing. And we tend to meet on a, a monthly basis uh, with a lot of uh, interaction in between meetings. Uh, as a company grows, the board tends to grow in terms of size. It tends to shift its composition from being 
composed of founders and investors to being increasingly founders, investors, and then people with very relevant industry expertise who can help guide uh, and support the management team as they move through later stages of uh, commercialization and market entry. And uh, uh, those, the frequency of those meetings tends to be maybe semi uh, or bimonthly, uh, sometimes even quarterly. And then ultimately, by the time you get to a uh, public company board, it tends to be quarterly meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, there tends to be uh, a lot of more ministerial board work. Uh, and by ministerial, I mean the work of uh, board committees in very formal, regulatory prescribed ways, like an audit committee that has to comply with Sarbanes-Oxley rules, or a compensation committee that needs to be sure that its uh, uh, policies for the compensation of the CEO and the management team are consistent with the fairness expectations of the institutional investor community. Um, so very, very different. The early stage board service is roll up your sleeves. It's almost like being an entrepreneur yourself. And uh, as uh, we grow companies, uh, we tend to get more dressed up when we go to the board meetings and sometimes even wear ties. Interesting. Do you often find that there's a lot of tension between the management team and the board members in terms of the direction of the company? And you know, if you end up with that sort of arm wrestling situation, who wins? Uh, short term, no one wins. Uh, long term, the investor generally wins. But the uh, what we try to avoid uh, in our own situations is uh, getting involved with. Uh, entrepreneurs or founders who aren't pragmatic, who don't understand or have common goals and objectives about what we're trying to do when we're constructing a company. There's an art to constructing a company, and probably the first principle of that art is, is that the founders, before they even uh, get in front of us, uh, have common objectives and goals with respect to what the company is supposed to be and the tone in which it's supposed to uh, uh, conduct itself in getting there, and then that we as uh, investing partners share that. Um, if that's the case, then uh, we can always generally, like in a good marriage or relationship, uh, kind of work things out when there are differences. Um, but if people don't start out with a common set of those uh, principles, uh, it's very easy for that to get off track and it, it's, it's hurtful to everybody involved. You waste a lot of time because the real competition isn't across the board table. The real competition is either in the market or under development someplace where you can't even detect it. And so time is our real enemy. Uh, it can be our friend, but in general it's our enemy. and It's a, really a race against time, which is why it's so uh, uh, anxious and, and difficult to be uh, uh, an entrepreneur and a uh, young company uh, team member. Super. So let me switch gears for a second. You have done so many different things, and one of them that I think is actually one of the most exciting things you've done over the last couple of years is being the co-chair of the Yes on Proposition 71 uh, ballot initiative, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get funding, large-scale funding, for stem cell research in California. Uh, how did you get involved with this? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what skills you brought 
Uh, so why you did it and what skills you brought to this uh, political campaign. Uh, when I started uh, my career in the biotechnology industry, the uh, disruptive technology was recombinant DNA. And at that time, recombinant DNA had not been around long enough to have any social benefit, which meant that for technology Luddites who were uh, skeptical uh, of the technology itself, that there was tremendous opportunity for them to raise skeptical concerns about misuse of the technology, about societal harm. And as a consequence, there were places like Berkeley, California, already nuclear-free zones that became recombinant-free zones. And there was a whole public policy conversation that had to go on to get people comfortable with the fact that the critics were uh, largely uh, making unsound uh, scientific arguments. And uh, uh, the reality is, is the critics don't really go away until you start to cure people with the technology. Today, we have 350 million people on the planet who've been uh, treated with recombinant DNA-based or monoclonal antibody-based medicines, and you don't hear any concern about recombinant DNA technology. We've dealt with that very well. Well, here comes, beginning in about uh, uh, 2001, uh, human embryonic stem cells, and the 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 tenor of concern about those uh, technologies, human embryonic stem cells, uh, sounded just like the recombinant DNA debate. And uh, the federal government, under the current administration, decided to be extremely restrictive in their funding of this and uh, really, in an unprecedented way, shut down the National Institutes of Health from continuing to uh, fund uh, anything but a very small trickle of the field. As a consequence, a group of uh, patient advocates in California and around the nation, a group of uh, leading members of the Stanford medical faculty, uh, Irving Weissman among them, uh, Phil Pizzo, the dean of the medical school, Paul Berg, a famous Nobel Prize winner for his work on developing recombinant DNA, uh, teamed together and decided that there was an opportunity to do something specific at the state level in California and to step into the federal funding void. And that's what led to the formation of the uh, campaign for Prop 71. Um, that campaign was led by a former Stanford undergraduate, law school graduate by the name of uh, Robert Klein, who was the uh, father of a son with juvenile diabetes the son of a, a mother with Alzheimer's disease, and he was outraged that the federal government was being so restrictive in the funding. He was the architect of uh, an Affordable Housing Act in California after he had come out of the law school in the, uh, in the 1970s and had the insight that one could use the bond financing mechanism in California through the initiative process to raise an independent uh, pool of money for research funding within the state. And that's what the Prop 71 campaign was all about. Uh, over 5 million California voters in an unprecedented act of people's democracy voted in favor of Prop 71. And uh, I'm very 
uh, proud to have been associated with it and feel very fortunate uh, to have then been appointed to the governing board, which is administering uh, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, which is the funding body in the form of a state agency um, to drive stem cell research in California, uh, along with Dean uh, Pizzo here, Dean Kessler, the medical school at UCSF, uh, Chancellor Bergenau at UC Berkeley, and a number of other leading uh, physician scientists and patient advocates who uh, are dedicated to uh, making California the leading um, community for stem cell uh, research, responsible stem cell research uh, in the world. Well, I know that when we were talking in advance of this uh, interview, uh, you were telling me about how you played a role in fundraising uh, to help on this initiative. And I, I thought some of the strategies that you used and the arguments you used to uh, get people to buy into it were extremely provocative and also um, very instrumental and, and leveraged your knowledge of entrepreneurship. Maybe you could share sure. some of that. So um, I had never been involved in a political campaign. I tend to be somewhat uh, you know, moderate in my political views. Sometimes uh, I'll vote for a Republican candidate, sometimes for a Democratic candidate. Uh, so my motivation to be involved with Prop 71, as was everyone who was involved in the leadership of the campaign, had to do with the, the rightness of the cause, as we felt it. And uh, one of the contributions that I was able to make was to think about kind of what the economic argument to donors would be. To, uh, to run an initiative campaign in California, given the size of the state, multimedia markets, uh, could cost at minimum $20 million and perhaps more. People have spent up to $100 million. Uh, our budget estimates were that it would cost somewhere between 20 and $30 million to raise uh, uh, public awareness to the point that we could get a yes on 71 vote. In that connection, uh, the argument I constructed was uh, uh, relatively straightforward, and that was if it's going to take $30 million to generate $3 billion of research spending, in essence, that's a 100 to 1 leverage on your philanthropic contribution. So that was, in fact, the argument that we took to uh, uh, wealthy, biomedically inclined donors and to uh, patient advocates. So we had uh, uh, no industry support by design uh, in raising the uh, nearly $30 million, which we raised in less than nine months to get this done. And people recognized that 100 to 1 leverage was uh, something that you couldn't get by uh, giving a uh, dollar to the uh, other worthy cause that you might otherwise give it to. So I think that helped. Super. So uh, since it passed uh, with a great mandate, uh, how are things going? Are you still engaged, involved, and following the progress? Yeah, so I'm very involved, and uh, I've been active in a number of committees. Um, the Intellectual Property Committee, the Legislative Affairs Committee. I was uh, uh, active in the Presidential Search Committee, which has since been disbanded because we have an absolutely magnificent uh, president of the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, now in place, a former head of one of the NIH uh, branches and a former uh, associate dean at UCSF. Um, but while we've put all the infrastructure in place, 
while we've selected San Francisco as our uh, headquarters for this effort through a process that yielded $18 million in subsidies from the city of San Francisco. Never in the history of a state agency in California has the state agency been the recipient of subsidies to locate somewhere. And we had a great bake-off between uh, San Diego, Sacramento, uh, Emeryville, and San Francisco in that regard that was all, all done in a very, very public uh, process. But today, we are unable to fund the initial grants that we have. Stanford is one of the recipients of those grants. Uh, because of litigation from some of our opponents who have gotten this tied up in uh, the state court system on the basis of some very narrow constitutional law arguments which are in the process of being litigated. So there's a trial on February 27th, as a matter of fact, which should hopefully provide some light on when we might be able to make funding available. So it's an interesting thing where you know, we, the will of the people was to fund this and to get the research going and to begin to m move cures to patients. And the reality is, is that uh, if you want to be obstructionist and disruptive, um, one can be. Yeah. I'm sure this is quite an education for you along the way. So um, speaking of education, if we look around this room, it's filled with students uh, from all different uh, technology disciplines uh, who are looking ahead to entrepreneurial uh, careers of their own. Um, are there things that you had wished that you had learned when you were their age, that you had wished you had learned when you were in school that would have made your path uh, easier? Well, the uh, obvious question is, yeah. I wish I knew everything I know now <laughs> 25 years ago. Uh, perhaps maybe not some things. Do you think you could put it in this one hour? Right? <laughs> yes. But uh, probably the most tangible thing that I think is perhaps part of the curriculums now that wasn't a part of the curriculum when I came through was uh, issues related to intellectual property, uh, patents, trademarks, copyrights. All of those things are centrally important uh, to many of the industries that uh, you guys may have interest in that I've been a participant or investor in. And uh, uh, those all had to be self-taught. So uh, understanding more uh, about the role of intellectual property, uh, the, the role of patents, what's a good patent, what's relevant about a patent, uh, what's important about uh, maintaining trademark protection in your uh, young emerging enterprise, uh, how to secure and uh, um, uh, properly police uh, copyright uh, uh, benefits for yourselves and your companies, all things that uh, I had to uh, learn in the School of Hard Knocks along with many other things, but that was something that I could have, could have been taught in this setting. Was there any specific uh, situation that happened early on where you thought, gosh, if only I had known this? Uh, some specific story about a missed opportunity? Well, actually, the best story was uh, once I got educated. Um, but uh, I think it was very difficult. And the first time I had to deal with intellectual property licenses from university technology offices mm -hmm. uh, and you know, didn't really understand what the elements of a patent are, uh, and for those of you who have either written patents or certainly read patents, you know, understand there's kind of a unique uh, language and structure to how uh, uh, patents are, are drafted, how claims are written, 
you know, it's uh, it's as unnatural uh, to 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 me as uh, you know reading uh, Plato or Kant might be to some of you. And uh, it would have been nice to have some some help in going through that. Probably the most opportunistic situation uh, we had is that Axion once had a prior name as a company. It was called Access Biotechnology. And uh, we had a logo. And the use of the logo next to the name comprised a a copyright, a trademark, I guess it was. And we discovered uh, another company that was using a similar name and a similar trademark. And we sent them a cease and desist letter and never heard back. And then we heard that they were in registration for their IPO. So we sent yet another cease and desist letter. Uh, At this point, uh, we also sent it to their uh, outside counsel, who we could identify through the SEC filings. Uh, All of a sudden, they got very interested in talking to us because um, in the course of an SEC uh, filing for a, a young company, you have to disclose pending litigation. So uh, uh, this company, because they hadn't done a thorough job of searching trademarks and of paying attention to prior correspondence, put themselves in an extremely vulnerable position uh, with respect to us at a time when they didn't really want to have to be dealing with um, any sort of housekeeping problems or issues. And it was a unfortunate situation for them that they trespassed our marks, uh, but we resolved it very happily. And uh, it was one of the more interesting uh, transactions that I've been involved in because they had to, we essentially resolved the problem by selling them our name and our trademark. And you changed your name. Changed your name. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What's the price? (laughs) Great. So um, last question I'm going to ask and then I'm going to open it up to the room is what, and this is a very generic question, but I always like to ask this to every one of our guests, what career advice would you give to someone who is just finishing school now? Um, we, we talked about what you wish you learned in school, mm-hmm. but as you dive off that diving board into this very big world of opportunity, uh, what advice would you give? I would say um, follow your passions. That, uh, as Tina uh, has said to you, uh, entrepreneurship is an extreme sport. And it takes tremendous amount of uh, persistence and tenacity. There's a lot of failure. There's a lot of self-doubt along the way. If you're not pursuing something you're passionate about, it's going to be very easy to stop along the way. And uh, being a, a, a successful entrepreneur means you don't stop. You don't stop at anything. You, you just get there. You may change course multiple times, but you get there. So, But if you're passionate about what you're doing, that's an easy thing to do. If you're not passionate about it, you know, it's uh, painfully difficult. I guess the second piece of career advice would be uh, to think about as my partner Bill David Al uh, has said, think about standing in the path of progress. Think about uh, identifying areas that are going to be important to, uh, to society and to the planet for the next 25 to 50 years. And those are the areas that if I were charting my career today, I'd be thinking about. Areas like energy and materials, areas like life sciences, um, but the internet's going to have a, a run for for quite some time. Um, I just think it's a magnificent time to be uh, at a great research university like Stanford and to have access 
to the uh, cross departmental and cross school programs that you have here. Super. Sort of like find a big wave and stand in front of it. Yeah. So they catch those waves. So let me open it up for questions. Uh, who wants to go first? Great. Oh, please pick up the microphone and speak into it. There should be one right on the back of the seat in front of you. Or, perfect. And push the little button. Thanks. Hi, I have a question about uh, an unfettered marketplace and life-saving technologies. I'm thinking about Madison <laughs> and Genentech, and what is the responsibility of the entrepreneur or the venture capitalist who's creating this stuff? Um, and how do you balance that with actually making some money? So, uh, I think the way we think about it in the context of the companies we're involved in, uh, there's, a, there's a health economic argument that's the basis for reimbursement. And it gets to the core question about pricing. How do you know what to price? Do you price on what the cost to manufacture the drug is? How do you deal with trying to factor in the cost of the 99 other projects that didn't make it that this one's got to support. So there's this cross-subsidization. And I don't want to speak to the specific uh, uh, product that you mentioned, and we don't really focus on developing uh, therapeutic products like that. But I can tell you in other areas of healthcare where we are involved in developing products, uh, we're focused on having a, a pretty profound economic benefit to the system. So, for instance, in the case of Genomic Health's Oncotype DX assay, it's a $3,000 test, but it's to help save somebody from going through $22,000 of treatment that they now, with the benefit of that test, don't really need. So we're interested in projects that can help save the healthcare system money while they're also contributing to what patient benefit. I think that's the responsibility that I know we feel we have at MDD. Great. Back in the back. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, open source biology? Why don't you repeat the question? The question was, uh, what are my thoughts on open source biology? Uh, it means lots of different things to different people, so why don't you define the context in which you've asked the question? So uh, open source biology as defined as should uh, genes be patented? Yeah, I think it's, it's okay that genes are patented. Uh, if, we didn't, if we didn't have... How do you get out of this? <laughs> well, you know, I did provide whatever guidance uh, he wanted. I was deeply indebted to him for that. So uh, uh, unfortunately... He couldn't take me into any of his open book tasks, and by uh, you know, so I, I just uh, shared my shared my experience with him somewhat. But uh, great, we've got a couple questions. One and then two. Uh, just about the previous question: How did you go about learning patents, You know, I think there is a there's a theme uh, that goes through a, a, a couple of things that have we've touched on today, which is being able to identify uh, subject matter experts and to interact with them in a, in a fashion that they're willing to share information with you 
uh, but you've obviously got to be able to make some contribution to what they know or what they would like to know. And so I've been able to do that in a wide variety of fields, whether it's in biology or chemistry or biochemistry or um, uh, chemical engineering most recently. And that was the same in my career. Uh, we were on the, there was a company I was involved in called Cetus Corporation that was on the leading edge of what was going on in these areas. And so we had some of the best uh, patent and intellectual property minds in the, in the country uh, working for us internally. And they were very, very uh, patient and kind to uh, help me better understand the issues I had as I had them. Basically, what you're saying is you have to know what you don't know and then build a team around you that are of people who are going to help you out. Right. And it's all about leverage. So, great. I know we have a question back there. Um, should I repeat the question? Sure. So the question was, uh, as a sole founder, it's sometimes very difficult. Uh, what did I do to mitigate those issues? And Well, once I was able to get enough critical mass to construct uh, a great management team, uh, I think that really addressed it. But that was probably two years into it. So it was a very difficult uh, time uh, to get to that point. The first major hire, a real credibility enhancing hire for, for Axion, uh, had accepted the position, was supposed to talk to his employer, who was a major East Coast academic institution. He was going to fly to the West Coast and join me in this project. And I remember it being odd, being three hours later, that I hadn't heard from him after he had supposedly gone in and resigned at lunchtime that day. And so I called him, and he was so sheepish on the phone. He'd never been sheepish before. He decided not to resign from his current position. So he was, in essence, telling me he wasn't going to come. So that, to me, was devastating. You talk about dark days. This was something I'd worked on for three months, something that I'd been continually talking to my board and investor about, and then he dropped out. And it was really devastating. So uh, until I got to the point where I had several really great team members uh, to kind of share the, the, the load with, uh, it was really tough. The, and once you, so my wife became, was my crutch in that case. And fortunately, she was there for me. But I needed to talk to somebody. Right. More questions? Anyone else? OK. And this was fabulous. It was an incredible pleasure having you here. I, we don't often have people in the life sciences who uh, provide this much incredible insight into that world. And uh, I know for most of the students who are engineering students, it, it is. That's why you're getting a lot of questions about, how do I learn about this? Because it's extremely fascinating. And yet, it feels daunting sometimes uh, to think about how do you basically open up that big, huge book and even know